first begin by just thanking you as the church for investing in this amazing campus that allows us to host something like this on site. Uh, I also want to thank the 105 volunteers. I mean, we had so many people sign up to be a part of this ministry. We actually had to tell people, no, 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 we're full, thanks. I mean, I can't remember a time in our kids' ministry we had to tell people, I'm sorry, you're too late. So I want to thank those of you who faithfully served in the heat outside with the kids. So if you're here and you served in sports camp in any way, would you stand just so we can honor you and thank you for your service. <clears throat> thank you guys, you truly uh, did make this event. 290 kids, 105 volunteers, 63 uh, new decisions for Christ that kids made, and there are also 16 kids who came up and rededicated their life to the Lord as a result of this week. So thank you for all of your investment and service. And if you're sitting out here and you're thinking, oh man, I missed it, or I was too late, I wanted to serve, but you told me you're a fool. I want you, not a fool, that we were full, F-U-L-L. Sometimes I talk too fast. I didn't want to have any miscommunication. So if you're like, Brian, I definitely want to serve at the next one. I'm glad you asked that. In your bulletin, Vacation Bible School, it's coming up in a month. And we're expecting twice as many kids on campus for the week. And we need a ton of help again. And so there's two ways that you can sign up. There's a QR code in your bulletin. Just scan if you want to sign up as a volunteer or you want to sign up as a child. You can go and, and sign up. You're like, Brian, I don't know how to use QR codes. I don't want to do that. Just go to the Information Center. On your way out, find Pastor Ken or fill out a connection card on the bottom and just say you want to sign up for VBS and don't worry, we'll reach out to you this week. Another thing I want to bring to your attention this week is our Estonia team leaves on Thursday. Uh, our Estonia team is a group of young adults going up to Estonia. It's the northern part of Europe, and they will not only be serving in a sports camp, in a soccer camp there, but they'll also be doing a, a VBS, partnering with the church on the south side of Estonia. And I want to encourage you and ask you to pray for this team. Throughout their two-week trip, will you just pray for them? And if you're not a member of the Friends of CVCC Facebook page, I want to encourage you to get on that, because not only is that a great way to get information about our church, but Stephen Bach, the leader of the team, who is fantastic at Facebook updates on mission teams, he'll be posting on there as well, so you can follow that team around with pictures so that you can see what they're doing as well. Lots going on. Will you pray with me? God, again, we're here. God, many of us are here because we believe in your power. We believe in your goodness. God, we believe in your love for us. God, we're grateful that you have empowered us to be a reflection of your glory within the Chino Valley. God, for sports camp, we know all good things come from you. God, we know only you could take a church like us and minister to, to almost 300 kids. God, we're grateful for your movement where you drew 63 kids to you for the first time and, and, and brought all of these volunteers. God, for this great week where there was safety, where there was joy, where there was truth shared, God, we're grateful for your work within us. God, for the Estonia team that's on their way out this week. God, we pray 
that you would fill them to the fullness of Christ Jesus with your spirit. God, may you use them. May you give them boldness, confidence, power, God, that they might be able to reach the souls of people and reunite them with you. God, that you would use them to bring salvation to even more people in the country of Estonia. God, we thank you and praise you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for a number of weeks now, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we're in the, we're in the area where we're seeing the effects of power after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. We're beginning to see characteristics, characteristics and qualities in the early church that are present because of the Holy Spirit. And although we are not supposed to look at this and model ourselves after the early church, we ought to be able to go in there and look at characteristics. Man, after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, remember the presence of God came in a pillar of fire then immediately broke in, broke into equal pieces and landed on every individual to make sure that everyone understood that they were equipped and expected and given the opportunity to influence others and be a witness for Jesus Christ. Another characteristic we see is boldness. Man, Peter and John had this boldness and ability to stand in the gap. Remember, boldness doesn't mean meanness. It doesn't mean loudness. It's this courageous ability to stand in a space where most people tremble and leave. But Peter and John are given this boldness. Another characteristic, confidence in God's plan God's plan and his power to complete it in their kooky culture. Man, if God can do a work in their kooky culture, why not ours? Three qualities that we see. Opportunity, boldness, confidence. Three qualities that it would be fantastic if we could continue to build them in our lives and in our church. There's another quality. Another quality we're going to go into next. It's often overlooked by the Christian church of our day. But it wasn't overlooked by God in theirs. It's a quality of purity. And God isn't satisfied with a church of opportunity, of boldness, of confidence, of power. God isn't satisfied with that. He's not happy with that if it's not also a church that has the characteristic of purity. So if you have your Bibles Will you join me in the book of Acts, the end of chapter 4? We see another effect of power, another characteristic for the church of today. If we truly want to be a church that God uses to transform lives, this is a characteristic we need to pay attention to because it's super important to God. As you're turning there, Acts chapter 4, let me catch you up on the, on the context of the passage where we are in the story. Peter and John were called before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the authority over all things political and religious within Jerusalem. They summoned Peter and John before them, questioned them, and directed them, commanded them, don't preach Jesus at all. It wasn't don't preach Jesus in that region or don't preach Jesus in that way. Don't preach Jesus. You're done. You're out. Close up shop. Hang your shingle. You're out. And Peter and John said, I'm sorry. We're compelled. 
That's why we've been empowered. She said, you'd receive power so you can be my witnesses. Peter and John like, I'm sorry. We can't do that. We need to continue. And after they were threatened, they were released and they immediately went to their people. They found their people and they prayed. And if you remember from last week, they didn't pray for judgment on the, on the rulers of their time. They didn't pray for special elections and different governmental leaders. Remember what they prayed for? Boldness. They didn't pray for judgment, power, control. I mean, they acknowledge, man, our culture's kooky. God, give us boldness that we can stand in the midst of it. And the Bible tells us that God gave them boldness, not just in their speech, but in their life. Like they lived in a way they held nothing back. And that's where we pick up our story. Where Luke, the author of Acts, gives us two examples. Two examples of purity. Here's what it looked like in their church. Remember, people were selling everything. I mean, nothing stood in the way of their building the kingdom of God on earth. That's what Jesus told us to pray for. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, they were all about it. And Luke goes into two examples. Two examples of purity. And he begins, as often we would as well, with a good example. A good example of purity. Here's what it looks like. Verse 36. The very end of chapter 4, verse 36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who also was called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's one real example of someone living a life of boldness. And Luke says, man, this was going on all over. Here's an example. Here's a great example, a good example. There's this guy named Joseph. Evidently, this was a pretty well-known guy. Because everyone would have been like, Joseph? Who's Joseph? Oh, oh, the apostles called him Barnabas. Oh, Barnabas. Yeah, great guy. Barnabas. And it translated in the Bible, it says translated means son of encouragement. You guys have that. Son of encouragement. We have this, we have this image of Barnabas. And he just ran around the church saying nice things to people. Hey, good job. You look great today. He just run around sports camp telling everyone, hey, keep going. Good job. Like he's just a super nice guy. That's the image that so many of us have of Barnabas. Like, he's just a good guy. He's got the spiritual gift of encouragement. Keep it up. Hey, kids, stay in school. He just goes around encouraging people. And we have this just image, and I just, I think we have a limited image of who Barnabas was. I'm sure he was a fantastic guy, a nice guy. But that's not what Barnabas means. See, when we translate things into Greek and English, sometimes we miss things. See, the name Barnabas, it's, it means son of encouragement, but it, it's actually son of a prophet. Like, if you want to translate the name, it's son of a prophet. And most people believe that Barnabas did more than just walk around and say nice things to people. He exhorted people with the truth. He empowered people with the gospel. 
He exhorted them to move forward. Like Barnabas wasn't just walking around telling people nice things. Barnabas was known as someone who was stirring up the people of God, giving them the gospel, the truth, exhorting them and empowering them to move forward, building the kingdom of God. I mean, that's who Barnabas was. This text says, listen, here's a great example. You all know Barnabas. Barnabas was this man who's just going through town, going through the church, going through Christians, exhorting them, empowering them to be followers of Christ, to be missionaries, to be witnesses for the gospel of Christ. There's something else this text tells us about Barnabas. Gives us a great picture. Now Joseph, also known as Barnabas, look at verse 36, a Levite of Cyprian birth. He was a Levite, one of the servants in the temple, and as a result, likely was forbidden to own any property. So what most people who understand history see this, Barnabas, the only property that he likely had was his burial site given to him. The one thing Barnabas likely owned was a place to lay his body when he died Man, you want a good example of living boldly. The one thing, the only thing Barnabas owned, likely a burial site, he sold it and invested it in the kingdom of God. Man, you want a picture of all in. You want a picture of someone who is just dedicated to the kingdom of God today. It's Barnabas. Look, I don't know where you bury me when I'm done, but I'm all in today. And this is an example. Luke says, man, God was doing crazy stuff, amazing stuff. In the midst of the church, here's an example. Barnabas, he was bold in his life. And again, let me be clear. This is not the Bible saying no one can own anything. The Bible isn't giving a prescription of everyone sell their stuff and no one gets to own even a burial plot. This is saying this is how God moved in Barnabas' life. He was so dedicated to the ministry. He was so filled with boldness for the kingdom of God. He was all in to the spot where he even sold his burial site and gave it to the ministry of God. Barnabas is a good example purity in the church. He didn't have much, but what he had was fully invested in the kingdom of God. But then if you're like me, you begin to look for these big biblical butts in the Bible, right? Have you started to do that? Chapter five, first word, but huge Huge biblical butt right there. Just when you have this great example of Barnabas, I mean, the son of encouragement, a son of a prophet, he was an exhorter, an empowerer, a gospel preacher, someone fanning the flames of others to be everything that God called them to be. And while he's, got a, he's given us a great example of purity in the church, there's a big biblical butt telling us there's something else. There's another side. There's a troubling Example. See, I think there's people who think that the early church was a flawless group of people 
hear people say, oh, if only we could live in an early church. Everyone loved each other. They're selling their burial spots and everyone was without a need. It was perfect. There was no drama. There was no sin. There was no struggle. If you ever hear that, point him to Acts chapter 5. The early church still had drama. The early church still dealt with sin. The early church still had people of differing values and beliefs and struggles. They're working through, and some of the most notorious of those are a man and wife named Ananias and Sapphira. At the same time, were you a Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the son of a prophet, the exhorter? Yet Ananias and Sapphira, let's look at that, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. But, just when you're feeling warm and fuzzy about Barnabas, don't. But, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 3. Just when you think everyone's going to applaud and, and get excited, just like they did with Barnabas. But, another big biblical but right there. But, Peter said, Ananias, why Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And he's heard these words, Ananias fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Here's a troubling example. Ananias and Sapphira. And let's make sure we understand what the troubling part of this story is. See, it's not that they sold their property and kept some of the proceeds. It's not they sold the property and kept some for themselves. Look, Peter even said that. Look, you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to sell everything. And if you did sell everything, you didn't have to give it all to the church. This is all yours. This is your resource to manage for God's glory. This is your responsibility. Put your thumb in uh, Acts Flip to the right to the book of 2 Corinthians. This is something that the guys and I talked about yesterday morning at the men's breakfast. Great time. Pastor Jody and I speaking with the guys at church on the importance of generosity, the characteristic of generosity that ought to exist in our lives. And when I say generosity, it's not just finances. It's time. Forgiveness is this characteristic that exists in God that ought to exist in us. But speaking of money, let's look at what Paul said. Paul wrote this to the church of Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Paul says this, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do, look at, look at this, each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. Not grumpily. Not because you have to. And God loves a cheerful giver. And God's always able to make all grace abound to you. So that you always having all sufficiency in everything. Maybe to have abundance for every good deed. 
That's what God desires for us. Yeah, Paul teaches, listen, what you have, man, you are responsible for that. You are empowered to steward that. And God wants you to invest boldly in the kingdom of God today. But not because the pastor says so. Not because you have to. Because you want to. You're excited about what God's doing in the midst. Because you anticipate what God can do with just a little bit. I mean, Jesus took a few loaves and fish, fed thousands. What can God do with a few hours of your life? A few dollars of your income. And if he can do that with just a few hours and a few dollars, what can he do with a lifetime of hours? With a lifetime of income. The problem, the poor example of Ananias and Sapphira wasn't that they sold their property and kept some of the proceeds. So what was it? What was the issue? See, in the text, it's very clear because they, it, most people believe Ananias and Sapphira saw what Barnabas did. He sold everything and laid it at the apostles' feet. Oh, man, people must have loved that. Oh, there goes Barnabas again. And he's special. What a great guy. He's a son of encouragement, the exhortation, son of a prophet. Ananias and Sapphira sold their property, kept some of the proceeds, and took the rest and laid it at the apostles' feet just the same way, expecting the same accolades. Wanting the same response. Maybe wanting to be noted by the apostles. See, the apostles noted Joseph, called him Barnabas. Maybe Ananias and Sapphira are looking for a position in the church. Respect in the community. Maybe they wanted a place in scripture. Well, they found it. What's the problem? What's the sin? What's the poor example of Ananias and Sapphira? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is defined as a deliberate deception, trying to make people think you're more spiritual than you really are. And look, Ananias isn't the first one. He's not the last. I mean, the Bible's filled with people. They're filled with people who wanted to look more spiritual than they were, who were more interested in the reactions of man than the approval of God. Bible sold with them. I just want to share two with you. If you have your thumbs, put it in Acts. Let's flip to the other side of the Bible, Book of Leviticus. Book of Leviticus, chapter 9. While you're turning there, just in case you're wondering, sometimes I put verses on the screen, sometimes I put references on the screen for you to follow, and, and that's intentional. My heart is, I, I, I want you to be able to see things in your own Bible. Make notes if you're those type of people. I, I was raised in a church where you don't write in the Bible, it's the Word of God. I have since rebelled against that. Now I scribble all over my Bible. It helps me remember. But I want you to see things in your Bible because I want you to be equipped to know the truth for yourself. And not only that, but to hold me accountable to preaching the Word of God. 
I mean, that's my job. My job isn't just spoon-feed you truths of Scripture. It's to equip you and empower you to not only hold me accountable, to teach others. And one way to do that is just to flip through the Bibles, not Bibles, Bible, Leviticus chapter 9. But I don't do it all the time because we'd be here forever and they only give me a certain amount of time before you all start looking at the back clock on the screen. You say, you think I don't see you. I see you. You start stretching like this, trying to play it off. I see you, just so you know. Leviticus chapter 9. Look what happened. Look at the Moses and Aaron. I'm in verse 23. Leviticus 9, certain 23. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord, consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Can you imagine that? Moses and Aaron have this moment. They bring the people and God together. The fire came out from before the Lord, consumed it. I mean, the image of that. The glory of the Lord appeared. I mean, the presence of God was there. And when people came face to face with God, they fell on their faces. They shouted and fell on their faces in reverence before God. Powerful moment that Moses and Aaron led. Leviticus chapter 10, very next verse, says, Now Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord. Fire that wasn't requested of God, fire that wasn't directed of God, an offering that wasn't desired by God, which he had not commanded them. Verse 2, and fire came out just like before. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. And Aaron, therefore, kept silent. Aaron's sons, man, they, they wanted to produce that same sort of opportunity. Hey, isn't that good? I mean, isn't that a good thing that they want to provide something else, another opportunity where people come face to face with the power of God? Evidently, these two sons weren't interested in the glory of God, basking in the glory themselves. Let's flip to the other side of the Bible, book Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. Matthew, chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, this is Jesus talking to religious leaders of his day. What happened? Matthew 23, then Jesus spoke to the crowds, to his disciples. I'm in verse 2 now. He's saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. 
They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues, respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father. He is in heaven. Jesus continues, look at verse 27. See, that statement goes into the series of woes that he says to the church. Woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. So you, too, outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Look at verse 33. Jesus continues, he looks at him and he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Man, in Jesus' ministry, man, there were two groups of people that Jesus just got infuriated by. One were people who claimed to be followers of Christ but failed to do nothing, who were gifted talents and just buried them in the sand out of fear of failure. Man, Jesus came unglued with those people. But you want to know who really ticked Jesus off? Pharisees, hypocrites, people who who act more righteous than they are, people who claim more piety than they have, people who behave as if they're pure on the outside, people who care more about the opinions of man than the opinions of God. Man, that drove Jesus nuts. Why is Peter so upset with Ananias and Sapphira and their hypocrisy? Because Jesus was. Jesus couldn't stand hypocrisy. Look what Peter says. Go back to the text, Acts chapter 4 now. Go back to verse 3. It says, but Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And people freak out. What? Satan can possess Christians? What? What's going on? And again, that's why we went back to the Greek last week, right? There's two words, fulfilled. One is that miraculous design, uh, uh, divine fulfillment of God that comes at his power. Another one is plerao that describes the characteristics in our life that reflect the Holy Spirit. Plerao is the word that Peter uses here. Why are you reflecting characteristics of Satan, hypocrisy, characteristic of Satan, the direct opposite of what God wants, the direct opposite of what Jesus empowered you to be? Why are you reflecting characteristics of Satan in your life, lying to the Holy Spirit? Why are you here practicing hypocrisy? Just so you don't think that Ananias got his wife, dragged her down the road unwillingly. 
Let's keep going. Verse 7. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, right? Remember, a young man came in, swooped up Ananias, took him off, buried him because it's hot. You don't leave bodies out when it's hot, evidently. Buried him. There elapsed an, hour, an interval of about three hours. His wife came in not knowing what happened. They didn't have find your friends back then. She didn't know where her husband was. Verse 8, Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. We're reading it in our hearts like, come on, Sapphira. Come on, Sapphira, right? She said, yep, that's the price. We're bringing all this for Jesus. And Peter said to him, why is it you've agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? You didn't think God would see this. You didn't think God would care you're coming into his house and bringing that garbage? You didn't think he'd care? Come on, you know Jesus. You know what God desires. This is his movement. This is the bride of Christ. It's filled with the Holy Spirit. We're given boldness and courage and opportunity. We're to be his witnesses throughout the globe. You didn't think Jesus would care? Behold, keep going, middle of verse 9, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet, breathed her last. Man, you got to feel bad for these young men, right? I mean, they just finished digging a grave for Ananias. It's always the young men that get this job, right? The young men came in, found her dead. They must have been like, come on! (laughs) Young men came in, found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Two examples of purity. I mean, God's doing a work in the midst of the church. There's a great example, Barnabas. Didn't have much. Invested it all in the kingdom. Ananias and Sapphira, they just sold a piece. Man, they had a lot. They were more interested in the accolades of man than the view of God. Because their hypocrisy. Here's an important truth, I think, for the church today. God will stop at nothing to purify his church. Hypocrisy is a big deal to God. And therefore, it needs to be a big deal to us. Let me ask a question this week. Where are you hypocritical? Where are you more concerned with the views of man than the view of God? You might say, hey, hey, Brian, I haven't, I haven't claimed to give anything to the church. It's not just in giving. Man, we, I think as a culture, are so good at wanting everyone to think that our marriage is perfect and blissful. You know, just because Gretchen and I never argue doesn't mean you can't. <laughs> we love to put this facade that our family is perfect and holy 
and we're unaware of the fact that what that creates in the church is this expectation that if you're broken, you won't be understood. If you're broken, you'll be condemned. If you come here needing support, you won't be understood. We love putting on social media all the great things that our kids achieve, but we don't put anything on how the church can pray for them and with you. Because I want everyone to think we have great kids because that makes us great parents. And so when there's people that come and their kids are struggling, we tend to hide it. Suffer alone. In confidence, no one's going to understand us. And people will probably blame us. We end up with a church, maybe not ours, but Christendom at large, where people are expected to be perfect. And so if you're sinning, if you're struggling, if you're falling into temptation, you certainly don't want to share it here. So people come to church acting like everything's fine in their heart. And they go home drowning in guilt and shame. Because of our hypocrisy, we love to throw stones at people who sin in ways we don't struggle. But then we look past our own sins and the sins of others who mirror our own. Why does God care about hypocrisy? Because it undermines the gospel. God will stop at nothing to purify his church. And I think we should have the same commitment. I have this poem in my office. I don't know who wrote it. I didn't. Here's what it says. The poem goes like this. I think that I shall never see a church that is all it ought to be. A church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way. A church that has no empty pews. A pastor who never has the blues. A church whose deacons always deek, and none is proud, all are meek. Where gossips never peddle lies or make complaints or criticize. Where all are always sweet and kind, and all to others faults are blind. Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me. But still we'll work, pray, and plan to make our church the best we can. I love that. Man, I'm sure there's a perfect church out there. I don't know it. And I'm not sure God requires it. Throughout Scripture, God chooses the broken, the weak, the ignorant to bring his movement of God through culture so that no one can boast. You know what I think is the hardest part about hypocrisy? Because I think it betrays our heart that what God needs is our perfection. He doesn't. He needs our brokenness so he can restore it and use it for his glory. If we want to be a church that is used to transform culture. We have to be more than bold, confident, 
and empowered. There needs to be purity. After this great description of this amazing movement of God, Luke wants to make sure that we know they had struggles too. He gave us two examples, a good one, a troubled one. And then people start dying in church and we think, okay, this new movement, they're never going to make it. I mean, that's catastrophic. Right? This movement's done. How can you survive that? That's a troubled church. God can't use a troubled church. Let's look at the result of purity. Let's look at what God does with the midst of that. Verse 11. Acts chapter 4, verse 11. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Results of purity. First result, reverence. Man, there's this respect of God. And look at this. Great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Man, there's something valuable and godly about a pure movement of God. If our goal is to be a reflection of the image of Jesus, purity is essential. What God did in this movement, number one, first result, reverence. This fear, not fear that fire is going to come and smoke them. It's this reverent awe. Man, God really is who he says he is. Let's keep going. Look at verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest of them dared to associate with the apostles. However, the people held them in high esteem. Here's a second result of purity. It's trust. Man, there is a little bit of people felt uncomfortable around the, path, or, or, around the apostles, but they trusted them. I was struck this week, man, how far we've fallen as a church, right? It was the day I remember going to, going to elementary school when you were told as a kid, if you're ever in trouble, go find a teacher, police officer, or pastor. Man, they don't say that anymore, do they? I mean, people, one of the biggest hurdles churches have is a loss of trust. Just this week, I was reading about the Southern Baptist, prominent denomination, independent investigator, ended up with a 300-page report highlighting decades of sexual abuse of women and children, vilifying victims, and protecting leaders from being accountable for their actions. That ought to make you angry. Because I'm confident it makes God angry. Man, guys, if we want to be a movement that reflects God in the midst of kooky culture, we have to pay attention to purity. Why? Because God did. We have to hold leaders accountable, we have to hold each other accountable. Every time this stuff happens, it not only tarnishes the ministry of Christ, but undermines your testimony as well. I think it's time we need to renew our commitment. We can't just be a group of people that have the gospel. We've got to be more than bold and confident. We need to have a commitment to purity. One result, 
Reverence, second trust, look at the last one. After all this, and all the more, I'm in verse 14, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Man, this authenticity, this honesty, this purity, man, it resonated. All the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent they even carried the sick out into the streets, laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. I mean, culture had such a confidence in the movement of God. They came to the church first. When was the last time that happened? When people had a need, they didn't go to the government. They didn't go to the police. They didn't go to city agencies. They came to the church. That was the one place you can trust because it was pure. It was honest. It was godly. And man, God used that to transform culture. I think the key to purity is recognizing the heart of the church isn't to reflect our so-called perfection. It's to be confident God can use our brokenness for his glory. Isn't that what Apostle Paul wrote? 1 Corinthians one twenty-six. Says this, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, here we go, so that no man may boast before God. Man, why is purity so important? Here's our final result of purity. Impact. That's what God uses. Where church is a trusted, safe place for you to come and find healing, restoration, empowerment. You can find forgiveness of sin, restoration of life be given an opportunity to be a part of something that doesn't burn that never ends to build the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven I think the question for us is simple where can you build purity in your Christian life authenticity Less focus of what mankind thinks of you and more focus on what God thinks of you. How can we as a church focus more on purity, be authentic and above reproach, as Peter said, if culture ever comes after us and persecutes us as a church, man, it better be for righteousness. If it's for tax evasion, that's on us. 
If it's for divisive speech or rebellious actions, that's on us. Where can you as a Christian and us as a church bring more purity into our Christian life? And I'm telling you, it's very important to God. And because it's important to him, it needs to be important to us. Let's pray. God, we come before you as a church. And in the quietness and privacy of our own hearts, God, we bring to you our own hypocrisy. God, there's something in us that feels good when we lash out at the sins of others and yet we fail to confess our own sin. God, we're people who come on Sundays and we, we claim to your forgiveness and God, yet we still fail to forgive others. God, we confess that we seem to be so focused on what mankind and culture thinks of us that we sometimes forget about what you desire in us instead. So God, we pray as a church, God, you'd purify us. God, give us boldness and confidence to not only proclaim your gospel, but God, to live a life that reflects it. God, give us confidence to allow people to see our struggles and to walk with us in the midst of them. God, give us boldness and mercy. God, instead of judging other people's sins, we can walk alongside them in confidence, God, that you will heal them and restore them and renew them. I pray you do a work in our church and our culture like you did in theirs. Create a movement, God, where culture trusts us most because they trust you most. May you protect us from doing something stupid that undermines your testimony and your ministry here. God, we lift everything up to you in anticipation of the great things that you can do and are already at work at in our midst together. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.